Hey, hey, this is Brian Benstock, General Manager and Vice President of Paragon Honda and Paragon Acura. And this is the Brian Benstock Show, where we talk about how the future is going to be frictionless as we think the unthinkable in the future of retailing. Tune in to hear how today's top retailers are leveraging the disruption that is occurring everywhere and turning that very disruption into a competitive advantage. Hold on tight. It's going to be a fun ride. Brian Bensuck. We're here to talk about the future of retail automotive with David Spisak of uh, Reynolds and Reynolds and Reverse Risk. David, welcome. Welcome Thanks to Paragon. How are you doing? Good to be here. Uh, David is a uh, an expert in automotive data. Uh, David ran some of the largest dealerships and most profitable dealerships in the country. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, thanks again for having me here. So, Brian, I, I uh, like a lot of people, just fell into the car business. It certainly wasn't planned or preconceived. I was given a month to find a job, getting out of the military, fell into the car business, fell in love with the car business, spent my next 27 years in automotive retail. I spent eight of those years in a public arena okay. with AutoNation, more about that later, and the first 19 years in a private cap environment. And so I started out uh, in uh, the Ford, Fran Toyota and Ford, ultimately ended up in most of my career in Highline. Talk to us about your, your experience at uh, Mercedes-Benz. I think you had a, a really good run there. And in fact, that's really what caused me to be interested in you, is what you were able to accomplish at a Mercedes-Benz store. Let's, let's talk about that. So, um, I started at Smythe European in San Jose back in 1991. And when I joined the store, when the Smythes brought me in, the store was, you know, it was an average performer. It wasn't bad, it wasn't great. It was, uh, we were making about a million two to a million four a year. Every year we got a little better, stepped up the ladder just a little bit. And for most people you'd think, hey, we did better than last year, that's phenomenal, sure, right? That's sure. all there is. I was actually pretty disappointed in the performance. I thought the store, uh, with its location and with its potential, should be doing much better. And I don't know about you, but I'm somebody who grew up, and God knows why, but started looking at the Fortune uh, 400 list, the sure. Forbes 400 sure, list, right? Sure, sure. Forbes 400 list, and <clears throat> I was always interested to see who was on that, where they came from, and, and I was always heartened by the fact that there was always about 30 or 40 people on that list that, that uh, never went to college. Yeah. And I didn't have the opportunity to go to college, so I took solace in that. But S Something else we have in common. Good. Right, so th but there are people from all walks of life that figure out how to get it done, right? And I was looking at this dealership, and, and so I followed that list. Another list I'd follow was the Ward's Auto Dealer. Every year they had the 500, yeah. and we were not part of that being on that list, you know, in a good way. So I was really convinced that we should be doing more. But I also became convinced that if we only continue to use the same metrics, same KPIs, same management philosophy, same, 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 uh, same reports uh, that were limited out of the DMS at the time, we probably squeezed all the blood that we're going to squeeze out of that turnip. So I decided to start looking into some alternative methods and I figured out how to leverage data in a different way than anybody else really ever had. Did the dealer at the time allow you to do that? Because a lot of times people are satisfied with mediocrity and they say they're not, but they, they want you to do big numbers and to change things without changing anything. Did your dealer allow you to make those changes necessary? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's many things to love about uh, Bill Smythe, um, just a legendary dealer actually from Rome, New York here. But, um, 
anyways, what, two of the things was he hired people, and Michael Smythe, his son, was the same way, but they hired people to do a job and then actually let them do their job. Can you imagine that? They didn't just yeah. hire them and then tell them every day how to do their job. If you have to do that, chances are pretty good you probably have the wrong person. Uh, either that or you probably have the wrong management style. Um, so that was one thing. And the second thing is, I asked him when I came in, I asked him, I asked Michael, hey, are there any sacred cows? You know, because if you're asking me to come in here and to change things and to make it better, but you say, I can't touch this person, you can't touch this person. You know, Eddie's been here for a hundred years. I know he's not he's a great salesperson, but he always has a good joke and he's, you know, he's a good guy. I can't work in that environment, right? You've got to do what you got to do in order to stay relevant and to be able to achieve a higher level of performance. So he did. So I started introducing a series of analytics and reports into the dealership. And we did it across all departments. We held our people accountable with a forecast uh, every year and every quarter. And we started implementing these new reports and a new way of, of managing people. Here is the new way. Instead of just looking at KPIs, right? If you think about it, Brian, we've been measuring our people the same way. We've been running the same playbook. We've been looking at the same reports right, since volume. the 80s. Sure, sure. <clears throat> and think about it, if you were a sports team, if you were the New York Jets, and let's just say that you won a Super Bowl. <laughs> it's been a long time since Sorry. you won a Super Bowl. Yeah, I had to go there, right? Late 60s, I yeah. had to go there. But yeah. if let's just say you're there, and you run the same playbook that you ran to win that Super Bowl in 1968, 69. 69. 69 with, with uh, Joe. That's right. Uh, Joe Namath, one of the best. He's tan, rested, and ready. I think we should bring him out in 2018. Absolutely. Go ahead. So, but if you run that playbook, Today, where's it going to get you? You're going to get clobbered. You're going to get crushed, man. So even the same playbook that the team that wins the Super Bowl the year before, if they run the exact same plays this year, they get killed. You've got to evolve. You've got to change, right? So I figured, okay, let's introduce a new, not only a new way of looking at data, but a new management philosophy. Let's not only look at those old school KPIs, which I'm not throwing out, right, they're sure. great. PBR, product penetration, ELR, RSPRO. It still counts. You gotta look at it, but that's blocking and tackling. That's level one. If you wanna get to the next level, you gotta go beyond that. Here's where we did something different. We also looked at transactional performance. What's that mean? It means, well, let's say that you have four F&I managers, um, taking transactional opportunities. Right. And every dealership we've learned is getting between 10 and 14,000 individual transactional opportunities with clients every month across okay. all departments. Okay. But if you have an F&I manager who gets 35% of your transactional opportunities in F&I this month, shouldn't they produce 35% of the department's growth? At least. At least, right? Now, I don't need to look at old school KPIs. If I see that person's producing 21% of my gross, yeah. I know I've got a problem. Yeah, problem number one is we're wasting opportunities and money's leaking out the door, right? So we wanted to look at that. How much money does each person make every time they say hello to a customer? Whether it's a service advisor, a parts counter, a wholesale person, a salesperson, whoever it might be. And you're using that metric to evaluate performance. Yeah, and the reason why, and you actually use that in conjunction with the with the uh, KPIs. The reason why is KPIs are telling you what level of contribution each one of your people are making to gross profit. Sure. 
has nothing to do with net profit, right? right. right? I could have two people generate $30,000. They're not equally valuable to this dealership or any other dealership. Why? What if one took 100 ups to make 30 grand, That's right. the other one took 40 ups? And the reality right. is floor traffic is down everywhere. You know, with the, the advent of the internet, there's a lot more efficiency, so people don't need to visit 4.3 dealerships anymore. In fact, uh, they, they're visiting, I think it's 1.3 dealerships. Less than two? Less than two before they make a transaction. So that increases the value per, per, per person in the dealership. So you can't afford to have somebody missing on 60% of your customers or 70% of your customers. You've got to have a, a higher level of throughput from every transaction, every uh, touch point. You have one shot. One shot. These days. Yeah, you have one shot. You don't the reality is, I don't think they're, if they're visiting physically 1.2, 1.3 stores, they're still visiting four, five, six. Sure. But they're able to use efficiency, to your point, and do it online. That's correct. Here's the problem. Those three or four other dealerships don't even know they were visited necessarily, or that they missed that transactional opportunity. So that's a whole other story. We'll tackle that another time. But... For the 1.3 dealerships they're going into, for the people that walk into this store in any store, you got one shot, right? So you absolutely have to know what you're doing. Now, imagine this. How do you manage that? How do you measure it? How do you know who's really performing at the highest levels if you're just using those old school KPIs? So here's the thing, is that, and in fact, here's a really good example. We've been looking at SAR, 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 SAR every year for the last God knows how many years, right? And everybody says, hey, life's going to be great. The SAR is going to be at 17 million or 17 and a half million. I got news for you, and it's probably not news to you, and that is this, that even though the SAR was pretty solid last year in terms of the total volume, it wasn't that great of a year for many dealerships. In fact, a lot of dealerships profitability went well, down. Well, that SAR is, a, is right? a, it's sort of a fake number, isn't it? Because you, you've got wholesale and retail so KPIs. Yeah, so are KPIs. Right, it's a false number. That's right. Right? It's not inaccurate, but it's a, it gives you a false reading. It gives you false hope. It gives you a false sense of what, you, what you've accomplished. Sure. So just because we do 17 million plus cars this year, it is not ultimately the best measurement for how successful dealerships will be or are going to be. And, and I don't want to go off the, the track, but I, I find the 16 or 17 million SAR, and it's been hovering on a low from 14, and let's leave the recession out of it to a high of about 17, 17 and a half million. The population of this country has gone up by you know, 60, 70, 80 million. So for that SAR to be level, that means we're actually losing ground. There are less people as a percentage buying new cars. And I guess that's due to the longevity of cars and, and also the alternate transportation methods that are out there. Absolutely. But let, let, let's go back to your, your history at Mercedes. So you were putting these new ways of looking at uh, numbers into place at the dealership. What impact did that have? So, and, and before I jump into that, just to wrap up that previous conversation, you've got KPIs, but now you want to look at transactional management too, right? Transactional performance. Because KPIs tell you what? what level of performance, what level of contribution to gross profit. When you look at transactional performance, you're looking at the contribution to net profit. And at the end of the day, that's what you take to the bank, right? So in terms of what happened, what transpired is through this, this evolution or revolution, if you will, uh, we went from making about 1.4 million. First year we rolled it out, 3.1 million. Now, so you double it? A little more than double. Okay. Now, most stores in the country, be honest, if your net profit you, you, doubles, you're done. 
Last year you're like, let's have a party. We're, we're good. good. We're done. We're wrapped up. Yeah. We figured this out. No. Fortunately, I was surrounded by an incredible group of managers that held themselves accountable, and which was much easier to do when you have better data, right? When you have better information, better business insight. So what happened next year? 5.6 million, almost doubled again. Next year after that, 8.1 million, then 12.8 million. So if you could imagine, in just four years, we go from not even being on the radar out of 21,000 stores in the country, sure. To being in the top 10 in profitability yeah, at, in the at, United at 12 States. Million. At 12.8 million. Wow. We are solidly in the top 10, even top five. Sure. Right, so top five. The very next year, we not only became the most profitable dealership in the United States at $16.7 million. $16.7 million. Uh, same store? Same store. Same location? On a whopping 3.9 acres, by wow. the way. Fantastic. With 24 spots for new cars. That's all we had was 24 spots. Okay. We could put about 60 used cars. I can, and, I can and, relate to that. And we, we had about 35 or 40 new Volvos, right? So my, my last year there was the year 2000. And that year, we set another record in the United States at 23.71 million in net profit, 8.3% net to sales, nearly 60% net to gross. And here was my favorite number, because it all starts with people, right? My favorite number, everybody wanted to talk about profitability. Here's my favorite number. Our employee turnover was less than 3%. Well, who's gonna leave a store that's making $20 million? Yeah, but here's the crazy part. We were on Stevens Creek Boulevard, right? We had, there was a huge Toyota store there, a huge Ford, huge Chevy. We were not even the, the highest paid, I didn't even have the highest paid people on my block, right. much less California or in the country. So it wasn't about how much they made. Did they make good money? Yeah, they made good money. Were they the top? No, not people, even close. you're building a winning team. But the culture And you had, you had a movement going on. And our Absolutely. friend Lisa Copeland talks about that. You know, build a movement and yeah. you get momentum. And nobody, you know, I mean, more important than money, I think, is growth. And people love to be a part of growth. And, you know, with the growth, of course, comes the, the compensation. That, that's pretty spectacular. And I, I wonder, if as you were looking at the numbers differently, did, did you see more and more opportunities? Because I think that's Everywhere. what's happening to me here, and that's one of the, the problems with reverse risk, is it makes you see <laughs> all the opportunities. And this store is delivering 10,000 plus cars a year, and I'm looking at reverse risk and saying, we're nowhere near where we should be. And, and other dealers, I think, think we're doing a pretty good job, and, and I'm looking at the numbers saying, the math says we can double. The math says we can double. And then I looked at what you did with net profit, and I said, well, the math also says we can double that. And that, that really gets me excited. Yeah, and I, I, I'd be willing to bet, uh, you know, if I hung out inside your numbers for a weekend or so, I'm willing to bet it's much more than double. Can you hang out inside my numbers, please? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll do I'm, it. I know you're a busy but guy. There's not a dealership in the country that should not be making double. There's not a dealership in the country today that should not be getting their arms around their data. Because if you're operating with the same playbook as you did five or 10 years ago, how are you going to take on all of this disruption and all of this change? Let me put my dealer hat on. Hey, David, there's a ton of data coming at us. What do we look at? Leads, internet hits, uh, uh, telephone calls. I mean, because if you look at internet leads, internet leads have dropped off substantially now because nobody wants to go on a phone and fill out a lead form. So what, what am I looking at? Am I, am I looking at hours per RO, number of ROs? What, what metrics am I using in the service department? 
to determine if I'm doing the job. Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a crazy one. Like, like, and you guys let me know. Let Brian know if you've ever heard this. Uh, I've been preaching this for years and years, and nobody looks at it, and I don't know why. So there is a correlation between the number of open ROs your service advisor has open at any given time and how, how well your fixed operations department is going to do. Do you know that? No. Okay. So here's the correlation. Let me write that down. You don't have to. This okay. is recorded. Oh, great. Good idea. Right? Watch your own video. Okay. So here's all you got to do. So you want to look at, you need to figure out first how many ROs does each one of your advisors write on average each day? Now let's just say in this store it's 15. Okay. Okay. So if, you're, if your average advisor is writing 15 ROs a day, how many open ROs should they have at any given time? All things being equal. If they're doing things really well. You tell me. I don't know. Well, hopefully 15. No, no more than 15. Right. right. No more than 15. Right. Now, sometimes they end up with cars that you know, are down for parts. The day before, sure. Diagnostic issues, sure. waiting for a claim to be approved, a warranty issue to be approved, something like that. Things happen. So I would say absolutely positively never more than one and a half days worth. Okay, that's okay. Good. That would have been the Now, I want you to consider something because almost every dealership I've ever been in has at least one service advisor or more that has two or more days of open ROs. And I want you to think about this for a second. If I'm an advisor and I have more than one and a half days worth of repair orders open at any given time, will that affect my ability tomorrow morning when I get another 15? What is the likelihood I'm going to make the time, take the time, be able to do a proper walk around with all 15 of those people? You can't. There's too much water coming in. You're, right. You're drowning. I'm drowning. And so, that's going to get repeated the next day. So wait a minute. So if that's the case, yeah, it's like a bad um, I Love Lucy skit from years ago, right? The chocolates on the computer. You're belt. dating us. Right? Yeah. That's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of every one of these right here. So, but here's the thing, is they're not going to have the time, Brian. Now, not only is that an issue from a client experience perspective, but what happened to your upsells in your drive? Yeah, they disappeared. They're gone yeah, for that person. Gone. Now, let's just say that that was a 2011 Honda Accord they brought in. Single line repair order coming in for brakes. Okay, now, we all know that single line repair orders are a challenge for dealerships, sure. right? And that's a whole other one. Very few people can measure or figure out how many single line repair orders we can. But let's just say that goes into the shop. The technician, the first thing that that technician is supposed to do with that Accord is what? Do an inspection of the car. MPI, yeah, sure. multi-point inspection, right. which is going to take them probably three to six tenths, which they're not getting paid for. But why do they do it? Number one, we do it because it's the right thing it's for the responsibility. customer. It's right. responsible. Right. Because if my customer comes back here at four o'clock to pick up that Accord and I don't tell them anything else is wrong with it, they're driving away on the presumption they could go from here to San Francisco if they wanted to, their car is fine. If they end up with an issue, that's a problem for me. Absolutely. Right? At the least, we I have an obligation to make sure the car is fine. Absolutely. But the technician also loves to do it because they can pick up potentially some additional line items. Correct. So they call the person back, they call me back, and they say, David, I found five additional line items on that Honda Accord you sent in to me. 
what's the likelihood I'm going to have the time to call the customer back? You, you're not. So what you're saying is you, you, you're going to I just lost. You, you, you lost. The technician's going to get crapped out. The customer's not going to get proper service. The dealership's not going to get proper income. Not getting upsells, not getting MPIs. You hit the nail on the head. Even bigger than that, your technician morale. How's that yeah. right about now? Right. Exactly. Oh, and by the way, how easy is it? I ask this question of dealers all the time. If you lost your worst technician, lowest performing tech, how long would it take for you to replace them? Most dealers tell me at least a month, right? Right? And I say, okay, well, what if you lost one of your best? Yeah, we, we've got some, some people that are irreplaceable. You know what that test. answer is? It's never, it might be never, right? right? That's exactly so right. can we really afford in the year 2018 to do anything in our dealerships that's gonna contribute to uh, morale issues? No, absolutely really, not. Really so now, I'd like to tell you that we're all done, but now I'm gonna feel like it's a little bit of a, a Ron Popeil commercial. There's more, okay? So wait, what is the likelihood that somebody with two days of open ROs or more is gonna be late calling customers back? Pretty high. Pretty darn high, yeah. right? And if they don't call me back as a customer and I say, hey, it's three o'clock, you never called me. So sorry, I'm so jammed up today. Guess what, as a customer, that's not my problem. Uh, yeah, I'm done and right? you're not gonna upsell me. Right, so that's a problem. So now you got a potential CSI issue. You have a potential client retention issue, right. and sure. I'd like to tell you you're done. Yeah. You're not. When an advisor has a CSI issue, because they know how important it is, how do they oftentimes solve that? Uh, not in a good way. Discounts, right. policy. That's right. Right? So I've got, at this point, I have lost uh, upsells in the drive, MPI upsells. Technician morale may be adversely impacted. I may have a CSI or client retention problem. I may have a factory CSI money issue. I have margin compression. I've got discounting. I've got policy. All, all that from looking at one report on reverse that risk, nobody's looking which at, which is open ROs right. per technician, uh, per open ROs per advisor, relative to the average number of ROs they write per day. Well, well that's spectacular, right? So there's many things. There are so many things that. You, What's the true effective commission rate you pay your salespeople? Right. Every dealership in America. We've discussed that. Right? Every dealership in America. Hey, what's your pay plan? They say we pay 20% or 25%. No, we're different here. No, you're not. You're not different. Everybody's the same. Everybody has the tiered program. It's tied to CSI. It's tied to volume. Right? Some people go, oh, we have flats. Not really that is different as you think it is when it comes to the compensation side. So here's the thing is that you're your stated commission rate for a salesperson, let's say it's 20%, that is not their true effective commission When you rate. had us look at that, we found some people that were paying close to 60% commission, 60%, although we had a written pay plan that said 20%, That's right. and a certain percentage of the back, and a certain amount for flats, but by the time you looked at all the bonus, all the spiffs, uh, uh, spiffs and everything Flats, else in it. bonuses, minis. And, and then you look at the generate, uh, the, the gross that that person was generating compared to what we were paying out in commission, over 50% in some cases. Brian, I see dealerships all over the country that have at least one salesperson who makes more in income than they generated in gross. Yeah. And I'm talking about including incentive money. Hey, don't talk about cases, Bob that way. Right? So it's crazy, but the thing is, where is that number? People aren't looking at that number, right? So how long are your advisors keeping open, keeping the rows open, right? That's cycle time. 
Is that a big deal? It is a big deal. Especially in a store, a metro market store like ours, where we don't have the real estate to store cars. And I don't think it's a good excuse for any dealer, regardless of the size, to be because you can keep the cars there longer, that you do keep the cars longer. But for us, we've got to have you know, 100 cars come in and 100 cars have to go out. And if there's any slowdown in that, we've got a finite number of spaces, that's going to leave us with a backlog, which then, then again, causes us to rush through customers and not get the proper uh, dollars per hour that we should and the customer client care that we should uh, as well. Talk to us about what happened after the dealership. You, you, uh, you take the dealership from 1.3 million to 20 plus million dollars. What was next in you? So what happened was uh, our store was sold to AutoNation. Um, the Smites decided to sell to AutoNation, so I was the operator and I stayed on as the operator. Any multiple of $20 time. million dollars is a pretty good day. It wasn't a bad day. Yeah. Um, but we were purchased by AutoNation and AutoNation actually uh, drafted me into becoming in, hey, they wanted me to become a corporate executive, right? Said, hey, maybe we could take this guy and put him out with this group of stores. So. The northwest region of the country was the newest region for AutoNation. It was the lowest performing region. They said, hey, you know, why don't you take this group and see what you could do? So all of a sudden I went from being a car guy running one store to being a corporate car guy overseeing 32 stores, 3,500 people, about 2.3 billion in annual revenue. It was a it was a seven day a week job. And it was a, it was a pretty interesting collection of stores, man. I had a, they had acquired a Cadillac store that was losing 125 a month, a Chevy store that was losing 250 a month, you know, a small Mitsubishi store, a Nissan store that they couldn't make zero. Those things all zero. take up bandwidth. If oh you're looking God. at 30 stores, disproportionately. Disproportionately, exactly. Right. Then I had the high-performing stores. I had, of course, Smythe. I had a couple of really good BMW stores, a number of good BMW stores, a couple of great Chevy, Ford stores, a great store in Toyota. But then, you know, I also had these low performers too. So we basically started implementing the same kind of processes in place. And 18 months later, I had the, the honor and the pleasure of standing on a stage with Mike Jackson, Mike Maroney, and I got a very nice, heavy glass trophy for being number one market in the United States. That's amazing. And, um, and it's the same process, it's, it's the same approach, and it's paying attention to the details. So it used to be if you, if you just did your blocking and tackling, you know, in the 70s or 80s or 90s, sure. um, and we were, we, you remember in the 90s, we had nine years of just constant growth. I sure do. Everybody was a genius. Yeah. Of course, when we had the downturn uh, back in 89, 90, it really revealed who was a great operator and who wasn't. We saw that again more recently, uh, as you know, back in 08, 09, 010, when we fell to nine and a half million units on the SAR. And so what happened was we were able to, to figure out over time that this approach was really valuable, but the better news was it was scalable and it would work in a small, in a, it would work in a small Mitsubishi store as well as it worked in a large And that was, store. that was my question, was it replicatable? And obviously yeah. it was. Of course, a large course. platform of a number of different dealerships, which I think is what's, what's interesting uh, to me and why I think we decided to, to, to come on board to get used to it. And what we loved is the accountability, cross-departmental, that we're all looking at the same data. And, you know, initially I think a lot of our people said, yeah, but, yeah, but that's not accurate. And you, you take all that away when, when your controller and your F&I person, your sales manager, and your assistants are all looking at the exact same data. And I, I love that about the tool. Um, with all the data that's coming into the dealership today, how do we know which data 
to, to take a look at. I, I only want data, the only data that's used to me, useful to me is um, data that is transactional, data that I can actually go out and action. do some action or do something with. So what would you say uh, a dealer can expect to get from reverse risk? What would be the most three most important things that somebody could expect to get from reverse risk? So, one of them, uh, you just said it, what would be just massive increase, a massive increase in accountability, right? Unprecedented levels of accountability. Because it's the only tool out there that, that, that really takes a holistic approach with a dealership. We're not just grabbing and focusing on accounting data. Is that important? It 100% is. That's where the money is. But we also need to pay attention to departmental data. We need to pay attention to associate performance data. Sure. I need to pay attention to client data. I need to pay attention to marketing related data. I need to pay attention to cash flow related data, right? So all kinds of things uh, that are going on in the dealership. Where's my FNI manager sending our deals? To the right here's, bank. Here's, a, here's another way of passively improving your, your net profit. So if you sell 100 cars and you send it to whatever number, whatever lenders you're sending it today, but what if you were to find out through reverse risk, Excessa, that they weren't being sent to the optimal lenders, right? And by just by figuring that out, having that business intelligence, we could redirect, redistribute some of our deals that would enhance your bottom line and your F&I management, I'm sorry, your F&I profit by 10, 20, 30,000 dollars. What percentage of that F&I gross goes to the bottom line? 80, 85, 90%, right? So it's massive. So number one, you get massive accountability increases. Number two, huge increases in transparency. Finally, everybody can see, you could see what's going on. And it doesn't matter if you have one store, Brian, or a hundred well, stores. I, I, what I like about that, somebody asked me who's your top performing F&I person. I can give you that data up to the minute. Three up seconds. To, uh, up three seconds. And uh, are we talking about new car, used cars, or both? Are we talking about uh, cash, or are we talking about lease? Yeah. And, and, and you, oh, you have that metric available. And you know, we'll get into, you, you were associated with a sports team a while ago, but isn't it amazing how in baseball they know every statistic. If you're getting up against a right-hander in Fenway Park, they know exactly how you're going to hit as a percentage against that right-hander in Fenway Park in a night game versus a day game. They know every statistic. Everything counts. And I think in, our, ball. I think in, in our business, we had a, a, the ability to not measure everything and get away with it for years. Now as the disruption is going on and the big players are coming in, the corporate players are coming in, we really need to make sure that we tighten up our game. And I think that's what I love about reverse risk. We can play on the same field as some of those other guys. When public corporations were first coming in, dealers said they'll never make it because each one of our transactions is you can systemize And they're not in the community. And they're, they're not, not in embedded the in the community. And, and boy, did a couple of those public groups prove them to be wrong. Process, here's what it comes down to, guys. Process wins. Remember that. Process is not glamorous. People don't think of process as fun. Nobody gets excited about a process discussion, but process wins. Think of any highly successful sports team or organization. McDonald's. I mean, as crazy as it is, if, if I'm going to have a quarter pounder with cheese in Queens, it's going to taste the same in Queens as it's going to take in, in Berlin, in Berlin, or in San Francisco. And right. that, I mean, that's process. I mean, and you think about where they're sourcing the meat, the French fries, and everything else. By the way, I don't eat uh, 
Me? But if I did, that hamburger is going to be the same with the French fries that I do. Well, and think uh, about think about how difficult it is for you to find talent in the year 2018 in the car business. You think that's tough? Try finding talent and reliable employees to come into your fast food chain and train those people and have them perform at the same high level every time. Listen, I don't care if it's Disneyland or if it's FedEx or if it's McDonald's or if it's Google or if it's Amazon, right? Every company you could think of that's high performing, process, 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 plus business intelligence from leveraging big data. Every one of them used that formula. Talk about sports teams. You know, the minute that, uh, uh, what was the gentleman's name from the Oakland A's, Billy Bean, wrote Moneyball. Yeah. Guess what? Every baseball team in America does Moneyball. Houston Astros, by the way, um, Jeff, the general manager, I had the pleasure of meeting him on a trip to Houston one time, just ran into him in a restaurant. But he actually was the Moneyball guy at the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay. who helped turn them around at a time when they were going in the wrong direction. He got hired without any GM experience because of his understanding of big data sure. and how to leverage that information. And oh, by the way, did it work? Yeah, I think so. I believe it did. They won the World Series. Yeah, so I don't care if you're talking football. I was affiliated with the 49ers for about 12 years um, during the good times, by the way. Joe Montana years? Joe Montana. I mean, I love that guy. Jerry Rice, Steve Young. Two, two minutes to go in the game. You're up by uh, you're up by 20 points and you're not comfortable with Joe That's Montana. Right. Give him the ball with two minutes to go and he's down 18, 19 points. And you're on the other up. side. It's yeah. going to be a bad day. It's going to be a bad so, day. So they used it back then. So, I mean, it's the year 2018, so you ask me three things, what are you going to get? You're going to get accountability, you're going to get transparency, and you're going to get, we invented one version of the truth. We invented that, right? We invented taking data from every area of the dealership and putting it in your hands so that within three seconds on any web-enabled device, you could find out anything you want to know about a department, an associate, your store, the entire group. We're here to talk about the future of retailing, and with all the disruption that's coming uh, into play right now, whether it be from Uber or Lyft or from Google or from Tesla, uh, how is uh, big data today going to help a dealer survive against the disruption? So, if you think about it, just invert kind of what Amazon did. Didn't Amazon win with data? Yeah, they sure did. So how do you compete with them? And you, You're going to compete with them with data, right? You're going to have to. What does Apple do? What does Google do? Those players are coming into our business. Whether we want to or not, whether you believe it or not, they're coming, right? So ride sharing obviously is here. Fractional ownership is here. Subscription based is here, right? All those things are happening. Online purchasing, it's not coming, it's here, it's, it's, right? It's right here. I mean, right you, can over purchase, there. you can purchase a car at a kiosk here in about 36 seconds. And, and, and I think the data, that what's really important, what's really cool, you, you said process, I think process is really important. I think a dealer's edge today is custom scalability. Let's get the processes in place. Let's scale it, but let's also not lose the human touch. And I think that's where a dealer can have an edge against some of the big disruptors. I mean, know me better is one of the tenants of, of Google. You, you, you can't, we've never had more information about our customers. We house the data, us and the OEMs. Let's share that data to serve the customers better. A little creepy with technology, <laughs> right? And knowing that you were associated with the 49ers, and 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 sending, if I was to pick up your car and service it, and, and putting a 49ers 
football hat in the car and say, hey, let's go 49ers this year. You, you're going to say, hey, how do they know that? And it's it, it's not creepy data because it's out there somewhere in your bio. There's something about you and the 49ers. And in fact, I saw it on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and so it, it's how do you scale that process and customize it so it's meaningful to the customer. I think that's really the edge of, of data today. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Number one, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, who doesn't love to hear their own name? Who doesn't love to feel important? Who doesn't want to be remembered? When you go into a restaurant and that person, somebody in the restaurant says, hey, Brian, welcome back. You feel good. Oh, if, you're, if you're with a customer. That's why I go to Bill Bouquet. Right. I, I know everybody there, they make it easy. Right. But And if you're with a client or you're with somebody important to you and they say, hey, Brian, please come this way. You feel great and you feel great obviously for them as well. When you go to the doctor, have you ever gone to a doctor's office and had to tell whatever you had to tell for the third or fourth or fifth time? That's a terrible experience, right? So people like to know when they go back to a hotel, back to a restaurant, back to a medical facility, back to whatever it is, back to a car dealership, that they remember me, right? They remember what I like, what's important to me, how I like to be dealt with, the fact that I need to get in and out in five or ten minutes, which by the way is about everybody right now. Sure. And the fact that you actually took the time to know a little bit about me, that's what, what that's what moves it from being creepy to being about personalized, sure. right? To being memorable. I mean and, and you look at Waze the first time you got in your car and Waze asked you, David, are you on your way to work? You just said, What? How did they know that? Or you have an appointment on your calendar and you get in the car and say, are you on your way to the appointment at such and such? That was a little creepy, but cool, you know, and say, yes, yes, I am. And, and, I, and I think that's uh, that's really good use. My wife and I were just at a hotel a couple weekends ago, and we walked in the hotel, and, and uh, the pillowcase is very nice, laid out, very nice uh, hotel, nice, nice um, room. But what made it even better is on the pillowcases, I got a picture of it, you had to take a picture and like, I'm not one who posts too much, so I will never post it, but our initials were monogrammed on the pillowcase. Yeah, that's pretty okay? special. So when you go there, like there's a lot of nice hotels out there in the world, how many do that? But they own you. Right. You know, and for whatever the cost is there, you know, they, they, they absolutely coming back. Um, put you on the spot. What do you predict? Give me three predictions for the next five years in automotive, what oh, do you man. predict? Um, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a second to think about it. You have the ability to see data across all platforms. I think um, you guys have 6,000 plus clients. Uh, no, not quite that many, but we have we have data from over 6,000. Right, that, sure. and that's what I'm yep. So you've got the data from 6,000, so you're seeing trends. Yes. Uh, and you, the, the trends are... We see most trends we see before you'll read about them, a month before you'll read about them in the automotive sure. field. And those trends are trailing data. So, so, uh, so I want to... And current. And current. <laughs> so what do you see as the future in automotive? Uh, I don't see consolidation going away. I see consolidation marching forward. I don't think there's anybody who would argue with that. So I definitely see... Um, I see fewer people owning more stores. Consolidation slash efficiency? Yeah, and what, what that, yeah, what that means, you know, people, you brought up the Publix back in 1998 when the Publix started uh, surfacing, you know, people said all kinds of bad things about the public, but they were they were scared of the Publix yeah, sure. also because they were the 800-pound gorilla. How am I going to compete with the 800-pound gorilla across the street? 
Well, the great dealers figured out not only how to compete, but how to win against them, while the publics were still winning in their own right, right? So, gaining the market share by Yeah, so when consolidators, think about this, guys. Let's say that consolidation marches forward, and there isn't anybody I've ever found in this business these days who argues that point. But that means you were competing with four or five or six or seven publics. Now you're essentially might be competing with a hundred publics, right? Because you're going to end up with a hundred groups or more that own a large volume of dealerships that would rival the number of stores that some of the publics own, right? So consolidation is going to march forward, and that will have implications if you don't if you don't figure out ways of bringing cost efficiencies, which is Walmart didn't sell more because they're better at retailing. They sell more because they do a much better job of acquiring product and at cost efficiencies. Amazon does the same thing with cost efficiencies, right? So you've, you've got to figure that out with consolidation. You've got to figure out how to market better. You've got to figure out how to deliver a better client experience. How to stay relevant to the, to the customer. And if you're not relevant to the customer, you're in history. Yeah, if you, if you tell me this is the way we've always done it, I could tell you you're not long for this world. I mean, I, in five or ten years, the market's going to take care of things, and it's and it's. I don't think it's going to be pleasant. So that's that's number one. Number two, disruption is not going away. I think we're just as crazy as it looks to all of us right now. I really believe we're on the leading edge. We haven't even scratched the surface with autonomous um, driving, autonomous cars rather. We haven't scratched the surface. Not even 5% of the people are buying online, I don't believe. We haven't seen Apple or Google or Amazon's entry into the car business. We haven't seen anything yet. So disruption is absolutely coming. Sure. So that's number two. And number three, if you, there's two kinds of dealerships I believe that's gonna exist. You either need to go out and acquire the best technology that is gonna allow your sales associates, service associates, and parse associates to deliver the experience clients expect and demand today, or you're gonna fall behind. So this is not the time to try to save a you know a few dollars. I get it, I'm a PL guy, but you gotta make an investment in the best systems, the best DMS, the best solutions, and you've got to pay attention to data because you just cannot afford in the next five years to be walking around blind and not knowing what you don't know. So we've got consolidation, we've got disruption, and we've got employing uh, actionable data and technology to help you compete. And I, I, I use this uh, line uh, more often lately when I talk about Jeff Bezos. He didn't invent any of the technologies he's using. He didn't invent the internet, he didn't invent Federal Express, he didn't invent online purchasing. He just leveraged the stuffing out of it. And I think in our own way, better. yeah, he did it much better. And I think in our own way, many viewers can do the same thing. David, I want to thank you for spending Thanks time for with us here me. today at Paragon. And congratulations thank on all you. your success. Appreciate really, it. really a pleasure so to have you here. Thank, thank you. Me. Thanks for joining. Thanks.